Hey, everybody. I'm Jen Garrett, internationally recognized branding consultant and best-selling author of the books, Move the Ball and Dominate the Game. By having a relentless mentality, I've pushed boundaries and gotten into rooms with pro athletes and power players, built a successful business, and moved the ball in male-dominated industries. Now, I'm using my same of the ball methodology to help thousands of people dominate their game when it comes to their brands and creating opportunities. This podcast is all about uncovering strategies of the world's best athletes and business leaders to help you get to that next level. Join me in conversations that will elevate your hustle and get you across the goal line. It's time to suit up, to show up, and to move the ball. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm excited to have you back for another episode. Real quickly, though, if you haven't already done so, be sure that you follow the podcast so that you never miss an episode and also share the show with some friends, family, colleagues, and coworkers, too. Today, you're going to hear my conversation with John Schwartz, who is a well-known sports executive, and John has worked for incredible organizations such as MasterCard Worldwide, Bank of America, NASCAR, the NFL, and the Big Ten Conference. On this episode, John and I discussed things he did to accelerate his career, the importance of networking and having a 30, 60, 90 day plan, how NASCAR has evolved, serving and getting involved in organizations you're passionate about, and more. This is a conversation I know you're really going to enjoy. You ready? Let's go. Hey, John, it is so great to have you here inside the huddle with us today. How are you? Jen, I've been looking forward to having this conversation. I'm good. I'm glad to be with you. Well, that makes two of us. You've got such an incredible background and we're going to have such great conversation today. So I'm really looking forward to just getting into things and where I want to start off. Well, first, I got to ask you, are you ready to move the ball? Absolutely. All right, let's do it. So you've had a great career. You've been an executive in many different organizations, MasterCard Worldwide, Bank of America, NASCAR, the NFL, the Big Ten Conference. So you've done some amazing things in your career. One of the things that I'm really focused on, especially this season of the show, is giving people things that they can take and implement in their own careers to really accelerate their progression. And so when you look at what you are doing right as you continue to navigate through your journey, what were some of the things that you did in your career to help you kind of accelerate and get to that executive level? When I knew I hit a wall with respect to learning at a current job, I had to move on because I knew inherently that I needed to get exposure to different situations and I needed to go to a place where it would challenge me and it would require me to upskill. And I think that's one thing, you know, when we get set in a job and we're succeeding and we're moving the ball, (laughs) we don't take the time always to upskill. And I really think that's important. And I can share a few examples as we go. Okay. And yet one other thing that you made me think about too, is you talked about when you hit a wall, then it was time to move. But let's talk about the beginning of a job. So there's a book called The First 90 Days. It's been out for a long time. I don't remember who exactly wrote it, but it's a great book. And in that book, it talks about four different 
types of situations and what you should be doing in the first 90 days of those jobs. Usually when you take a new job, you're thinking about that first quarter, like what is it that I want to really get done so that I can move the ball and make an impact? That doesn't mean you toss everything that's already being done out the window, but you really want to focus on those first 90 days. So I'm going to ask you, John, when you look at like the first 90 days, what are some of the things that you are focused on? And that could be different depending on if it's a turnaround organization or if it's a startup. But just in general, what are some of the things that coming into a new organization you're looking to do that has helped you? Yeah, I read the book too, and I thought it was really helpful. My process is a little different. I am a planner, so I like to take a beat and write a 30, 60, 90 to make sure that I'm really focused in those moments because you only get one chance to make a first impression and you have to identify those areas of key wins. And Look, it's probably different depending on the kind of organization you go to. I've I've had the chance to work for micro small businesses, small and medium-sized businesses, and large corporations. And I think the plan needs to be different for all those. If you work for a large matrix organization like Bank of America or MasterCard, your calculus has to change. If you work for a sports league like the NFL, your approach needs to be a little bit different. And if you work for a small business, well, it's key to make sure that you meet everybody you need to and then go off and get some quick wins. So I think it, I hate to answer a question with the word well, or it depends, but it really does. And I think those people who take the time or read the book and invest some energy into putting a plan on paper, one, they're no more confident But also successful people have goals and we like to cross things off. And so a good plan that's well-written and that has buy-in from your immediate supervisor is time well spent. And I think it comes back to just being strategic and intentional. You talk about how you need to do that every day, just in managing your time. But also when you're coming into a role, you need to be thinking about, okay, I'm coming into this new role or I've been in this role. Let me be deliberate in what are the things that I really want to attack? What do I want to learn? Who do I need to connect with? All of those things. And that plan can change, but really setting up that 30, 60, 90, like you mentioned, is key to just kind of setting the foundation and getting you started. And then you pivot and adjust as you need to. Completely agree, Jen. Good summary. Something else that I was thinking about. So I recently did a two-part series here on the show where I talked about 10 tips across the two episodes that I did early in my career to be able to excel. And I was in Fortune 50 senior leadership in my 20s. Not many people get to do that. I'm not bragging, but there were things that I did, right? One of the things that I was very focused on was my network and visibility and making sure that people knew who I was and the value that I brought to the table. How has your network helped you as you've continued to go through and navigate not only in big companies, but small as well as in the sports world? Well, My network left an impression on me from the very beginning, and it really cultivated my approach to work in a big way and and, in life in a big way. I was at the University of Maryland studying journalism, and I got a job reporting for the Diamondback, which is the school newspaper. I handed in my first story. It was about one of our football players. My editor handed the story back to me immediately with $15 on top of it and said, that was your first and last story. Thanks for coming. And I was befuddled, right? I mean, I was absolutely amazed that this kid, he was like a year younger than me, would do that. 
And on the way out the door, I just stopped myself. I turned around. I said, you, you got to give me something. I'm not accepting just peace out. And he said, he rolled his eyes and he pulled a chair up behind him. He said, sit down. And he edited the story in front of me. He, so my work, he was sort of molding the clay right in front of me. And he really spent some time helping with the inverted pyramid style, which many of your listeners are probably familiar with in news reporting. And it just struck a chord with me. This, this person took the time to mentor me. And I got more out of that experience than I did in any of the classes I took. And so my network now is filled with people who helped me along the way and people as a result of this experience that I've chosen to help because I get great energy around using my network to expand the notion of mentoring and really reaching out and making sure that you're paying it forward. And I believe that's really, really powerful. Your network will come. Every job you work in, you're going to leave with eight to 12 really amazing contacts that you're going to stay connected with throughout your career. But it's really those ones you connect with on that real deep level where you're getting a value exchange that's unlike anything that you could experience within the confines of the job. And that, for me, has been the ability to be, be mentored and the ability to mentor others. And I think people that are listening to the show that might be a little bit more further along in their career can think back about people in their network that have done that for them, that have guided them and shaped them and given them feedback. And I think you bring up a really great point, too. I love how you talked about you weren't just okay with like, hey, peace out. It was like, hey, no, like I want to learn what happened here. What did I do wrong? That's important, too, is get that feedback from people in a job. And even if you're applying for a job and you don't get that job, you can always ask for feedback. A lot of times people don't want to respond because for whatever reason, but I mean, it doesn't hurt to ask and you never know who might be willing to give you some constructive feedback and let you know, hey, this is where I think you need to improve or you didn't have this experience. I would suggest you go get that if you're looking for these types of jobs or whatever. So I think it's very important that you're, we're always asking others for guidance and coaching and feedback where it makes sense. I completely agree, Jen. So, John, I mentioned earlier you've been at MasterCard Worldwide, Bank of America, and then you went to NASCAR and the NFL. Why the switch into the sports industry? What prompted you to go in that direction? Well, I, I actually never switched. I've always been on one side of sports or another, whether it's a team side, league side. I went to sports sponsors along the way, and I worked on those sponsorships and helping to articulate the value proposition why is MasterCard invested in all these sports? How is it supposed to drive business collecting all these different toys? As, as it was criticized, uh, once criticized about the investment the, the the banks and the payment card companies were making. And so really, I, st I started my career, I was interning at the Washington Capitals. And the PR director, actually, of the Pittsburgh Penguins was in town because they were facing the the Capitals as, as back in the early 90s as they normally did in the playoffs. And she offered me an internship on the spot. So I had sort of two internships, one for the regular season the following year with the Capitals and one for this upcoming summer. So I spent some time with both organizations. It was incredible. I learned so much. And when I got back through that experience, I'm probably like the senior in college right now, I decided that I just fell in love with working and I sort of fell out of love and being a student. So I dropped out 
you're looking at a college dropout. Now, I slowly finished up my degree, to be clear, but I dropped out because I was chasing this amazing job, an expansion American Hockey League team in Baltimore. I annoyed the person so much that they said, if you stop annoying me, we'll give you the job. Paid $15,000 a year, and it was absolutely incredible. From there, <laughs> I got called into the GM's office one day, and he said, we, we have some great news. We looked around the league, and we found out that play-by-play announcers are also doing PR, and the PR directors are doing some play-by-play announcement. And I said, geez, you know, that's great. I, I guess I have to learn how to do play-by-play. I'm excited. And I said, no, you don't understand. The good news is we're consolidating the job, and we're giving those responsibilities to, <laughs> to the play-by-play announcer. And I was like, oh, and you, and you get paid through the week. And it was a Thursday, I thought. So I was devastated, right? I was just like, oh, it was my first job. Felt so much pride. I didn't have a college degree at the time. So from there, I, I hooked up with a, with a bunch of different organizations. I was at an arena football league team and a roller hockey team. I transitioned to a big New York City PR agency where I sort of continued my learning journey. I left in the early 2000s for the bright lights of the original XFL, which was a joint venture between NBC Sports and WWE. At the time, they were called WWF. And then I transitioned in-house into, I I worked at a CPG company, was very involved in sports, MasterCard, and then Bank of America. All those jobs challenging me in different ways, different size companies, different philosophies. And then a friend called me and said, we're trying to reimagine how NASCAR does business. And how NASCAR recruits new fans. Would you be willing to come on? And I said, let's do it. And we really did a real amazing job at pulling together the sport and its stakeholders. And trying to get everybody to drive in the same direction, for lack of a better term. Wonderful experience there. Spent a couple years, last few years at the NFL and the Big Ten Conference. And that's sort of my career journey. And what I will say along the way is sort of the things that have pushed me are certainly my network, but also the new challenges, right? Um, I think a lot of young people make the mistake of just trying to get to a place where they're comfortable. That email inbox is empty. I feel confident and comfortable. My job, my boss is happy. I'm making friends at work and they get too comfortable. And that is the enemy. And I think you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, as the saying says. Well, you also have to understand where to pick your spots. And I think for me, my journey has been really about picking my spots. Well, it's a great career synopsis, John, and you've had just such an amazing set of experiences. And you talk about NASCAR and the fan experience. I mean, that's something that I don't talk about this a lot and you won't see it on my LinkedIn or anywhere like that. But a few years back, I was actually involved with a startup football organization that would have competed with the the new XFL. And so the fan experience part was a big part of our thought process is how do you draw in that fan base and get people to be excited and intrigued about another new football league. So I find that fascinating. When you were at NASCAR, I mean, what were some of the things that you were thinking through as you were looking at how you, to use your words, get the fans driving in the same direction? The NASCAR race is one of the most complex and challenging environments you can be in as a human being. You've got these 3,500-pound cars racing around the track at 200-plus miles an hour. You've got pit crews over the pit wall doing pit stops. You've got fans in and out walking everywhere. You have people meandering around the garage area. 
And if you're a fan, if you're one of those, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100,000 fans, you better know what you're doing. Because if you've never been to a NASCAR race, you probably won't be able to ask anybody because it can't hear you. Probably won't be able to talk to your neighbor and ask questions or strike up a dialogue. You probably won't know intuitively where to get headsets and earplugs and food and, and and where the bathrooms are. Do they accept credit cards? You know, some of these tracks were at the time really antiquated. And so our job was to lower the barrier for entry and start with the news media. And so we did a lot of work with immersion programs, trying to take new media through the sport that focused on technology, innovation, youth. We worked really hard to develop relationships with the black press, with Latino journalists and really do immersive experiences, get them in a race car, get them on pit road, go up in a suite, get different vantage points throughout the racetrack, meet a driver, spend some time with a crew chief, meet the president of NASCAR. And, and so those were really valuable experiences. And I think NASCAR at any given moment during a race is on the verge of massive crisis, right? And being involved on the communications team on that front is is a huge challenge. But it's also a great opportunity when the, the cars aren't running and telling the business story of NASCAR and how it was making efforts to move the ball forward on DE&I especially. And what you've seen over the last few years is absolutely incredible. NASCAR formally and officially removed the Confederate flag. They've established relationships with the Boys and Girls Club to reimagine their giving strategy. And they're they're doing different kinds of celebrations that reaching underserved communities. It's just absolutely incredible. They won Sports League of the Year a couple of years ago. And you, to think about where they started and where they, they've been. I mean, this is a family-owned business. Don't forget, right? Jim France and Lisa France Kennedy are the primary owners of NASCAR as it relates to those who were active in the the sport and change is hard, especially in a family owned business. And the scale is incredible. So I give them all a hat tip because they're doing a lot of breakthrough things right now. Oh, absolutely. So you've worked in NASCAR, you've worked for the NFL. Talk to us about what are some of the differences culturally between those organizations? I mean, they're both in the business of professional sports, but there are some differences as well. Yeah, I mean, NASCAR started in the backwoods of Georgia, where moonshiners were working their stills to have their product at the ready. And they, to outrun the police, they really took their stock cars, the cars they bought from the dealer, and and really turned them into real racing machines to outrun the cops. And when NASCAR was brought to the shores of Daytona Beach and it was founded and all these local races were organized under one sanctioning body back in 1948, this is the 75th anniversary of NASCAR, boy, the world changed. And, you know, along the way, NASCAR became a sport that is very old, very white, very Southern, very set in its ways. And now what you're seeing with a lot of influencers and a a lot of bold decision-making at the top of NASCAR that fan base is changing significantly. The NFL, on the other hand, much bigger scope, much bigger fan base. Obviously, you know, their allure on across the consumption is high everywhere. Television, digital media, social media, attendance, just sponsorship dollars, merchandise, et cetera. So I think it's just a different, different type of environment. You know, the one big difference was NASCAR was not a stick and ball sport. And you had to work really hard to educate people. The NFL was more about trying 
new things that would open up new avenues of fandom and finance, basically, right? New areas of revenue. And so I think those differences were really helped me be a more well-rounded. I was able to try some things at the NFL. We did at NASCAR. And I, I think it was it was a really special experience for me having sort of spent time in both leagues. Yeah, it's fantastic to kind of see different worlds, what things are working in one domain that you might want to try in another and just kind of see how another organization at the highest level of sports is operating and what they do you know, to move the ball and make things happen. So, John, aside from your career, I mean, you're doing so many other things to make an impact as well. You're the chairman of the American Hockey Association. They've got programs all over. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, American Special Hockey Association. We started out when I got involved about 20 years ago with, with about 15 teams across the nation. Now we're in 110 U.S. cities. I couldn't be more proud. It's a brand of hockey for people living with intellectual and developmental disabilities, otherwise known as IDs. And we have kids as young as five, and we have people well into adulthood participating. We have over 7,000 members right now, and we continue to grow. Every year we add more and more teams and it was really special. I'll tell you, the first time I jumped on the ice, I, I grew up with a neurological disorder called Tourette's syndrome. And you know, one of the things that I realized quickly was I, I was I love baseball, and but I realized there was so much downtime in baseball. I spent that time sort of ticking, but with hockey, with the smells of the rink, the gasoline and the cold air, and you you feel the air and on your skin, you have this incredible sensory experience hearing all the pucks and sticks clanking against the ice. I mean, you can almost taste the ice. I mean, it's just like a five sensory experience. You know, for me, it clicked. And the role that that, that hockey played in my development, I really wanted to pass along and share my love of the game with people who were overlooked for the game may, may, may have overlooked otherwise, right? And what we saw early on was when you pair neurotypical kids with children who have intellectual disabilities, something special happens. First off, they would have never met under any other circumstances had it not been for hockey. Two, they're actually forming a relationship, especially those who are similar aged. And you're seeing the level of understanding on both sides rise significantly because we were able to keep the player to coast ratio down. Some teams as of many coaches, junior coaches, people who are in high school and in college as there are players. And so it's just a really special opportunity. I've had some wonderful journeys along the way with the American Special Hockey Association, which is led by our talented director, Jan O'Brien. And it really, it served as a foundation for which I built in many ways, the career that I've had, because it's always grounded in something that I really feel passionate about. Well, I think that's great. And the reason why I wanted us to talk about it, too, is I always say on the show, moving the ball is not just about you, but it's about making an impact and doing things for others. And you mentioned groups that might have been overlooked. There's are always, no matter what area you're in, what industry, what field, there's always people who are forgotten about. And so it takes really leaders who are intentional and deliberate about let me help this particular group to get an opportunity to be able to do these things and these experiences. So I just think what you're doing and what the organization is doing is a wonderful thing. 
Thank you. And I think it really spilled over into my approach to my career and the things I chose to work on and put time and energy into. Most recently, the Big Ten Conference, I had a chance to go to Selma, Alabama, which was really the epicenter, one of the, many, one of the very few epicenters of the civil rights movement. And we walked the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which was named at the time for the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. We spent some time with survivors of Bloody Sunday and heard their stories. And the number of times they had been arrested, how they were beaten and battered and discouraged and had to turn around. And we took that 52 or 53 mile drive from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama and toward these museums. And we took a, a hundred student athletes with us. And you know, normally you wouldn't have that kind of experience in addition to going to class and going to practices and, and playing games. You would have an experience indicative of what it was like to live in the, the area in which you were going to school. And this was above and beyond. So the conference did that above and beyond. And earlier in my career, one of my biggest accomplishments, I think, was working on the NFL's first LGBTQ plus campaign. I was working leading strategic communications at the NFL. I'm a big advocate for LGBTQ plus issues and concerns. And I decided to just join as an ally, the employee resource group, which at the time employee resource groups were just forming. They were merging as big voices internally as it relates to issues and opportunities that are important to them. So I joined the group, the working group. And at the time, the NFL was doing a pretty good job at supporting the group. The group got about $10,000 a year to sponsor the New York City Pride Parade. But talking to the people in the resource group and listening to some of their thoughts and feelings, you know, they felt like that there was an opportunity to do much, much more. And the problem was is that nobody was assigned to it. These were all people from different departments and different parts of the organization. Some of us were separated by thousands of miles. And it wasn't anybody's job. It really wasn't HR. It really wasn't communications. It wasn't marketing. It was This was before the NFL had a chief diversity, equity, inclusion officer. So I raised my hand and said, you know what? This is not my job either, but I need to work on it. We need to do something. So we put this campaign together. At the time, there was this huge stigma about active players coming out. We put together this campaign, which was incredible. Troy Vincent, the top football operations person, he's EVP of football ops and a mentor of mine, agreed to write an op-ed about coming out in the NFL. And this is a cisgender male who played football and is a devout Christian, African-American. And he wrote this op-ed that was basically like, okay, now's the time to reimagine how people feel about this topic. We put pulled together a PSA with a number of active players, which was amazing, talking about the stigmas about coming out and them being really lifted and not, not as important anymore. Not that a stigma is ever important. It's just an, it's something that stands between someone doing something bold and ambitious and think some other terms being attached to that. I thought it was completely unfair that there was a stigma. So anyway, we, we launched this campaign and about a week later, a colleague of mine in another office, 3,000 miles away, I'd never met her. She used the website we created to come out herself. And that moment was one of the biggest moments of my career. I mean, for, for me to be part of something that led somebody else to feel safe, to help raise their voice, to 
share something so intimate and do it on the platform I helped create was just an incredible moment in time and really proud of it. A year later, you may remember that Carl Nassib became the first active NFL player to come out. And of course, this year, you're seeing the league doing crazy amount of work behind the scenes to pull together programming, such as I think this year they partnered with a fashion designer to launch a line of pride-themed NFL gear. So that's really one example of how you take your passion and you make it come to life through work. Well, I think that's an incredible story. And I mean, just giving someone the courage to feel safe, like you mentioned, to come out and share their story and to be their true, authentic self and feel like they can do that is really an incredible feeling. So kudos to you for really stepping up and leading the charge at being involved with the ERG and, and the campaign. And I just think that's fantastic. I mean, I, another reason why these things are important to me is, I mean, even with in my own career, like in the world of sports, my listeners know that I, mean, I didn't start off my career in sports, and I certainly wouldn't be where I am today with the Move the Ball movement and the brand if it weren't for people that really helped people that are overlooked, right? Women were overlooked as people that were trying to make a difference in sports. And I had an athletic director message me this morning. And he was like, Jen, you get to be in so many cool places and you're always posting all these great pictures. And it's like, yeah, well, there was a day when that never happened, right? And there was a time where I never thought those things would happen. I mean, just this past weekend, I was in Philadelphia for Devontae Smith's celebrity softball game, you know, out there on the field. I was not in the game, but I was right there. And 10 years ago, if you were to tell me that's where I'd be today, never would have thought it. Not because, I mean, I do think we push boundaries and we go after what people may say is impossible, but it's because of the people that helped me along the way. I didn't do this by myself. And so having people like yourself, and I would challenge everyone listening to the show to look at how can you get involved in things that you're passionate about to really make an impact for other people. So John, what we're going to do now is we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have some fun. We will be right back. Hey, have you moved the ball in your own life today? If you're working toward your dream job, a new personal record, or a bigger salary, you need a plan to consistently make progress. That's why I wrote Move the Ball and Dominate the Game. These books are packed with strategy and easy to implement tips on gaining clarity of your goals, developing your own personalized playbook for success, pushing your boundaries of comfortability, and really elevating and dominating. Go to www.dominateandmove.com and enter code DOMINATE2023 for a 20% discount on the bundle. And all books are signed copies as well. Now, let's get back to the show. All right, John, we are back and I'm going to run you through the questions as part of my two minute drill. And I said we were going to have some fun earlier. Not that we weren't already having fun, by the way, but we're going to take it up a notch. Are you ready for these questions? I am ready. All right. First question is, what three words would you use to describe yourself? Passion, mentor, and advocate. Great three words. What is one thing that most people don't know about you? That I was a mall Easter bunny for a while. Um, I also sold women's shoes and was a door-to-door knife salesman. Nice. Very diverse background. (laughs) (laughs) Would you rather be the world champion of your sport or the CEO of a billion-dollar company and why? So now you can be both. You need to start with, uh, right? You need to start with being a world champion and then becoming a CEO. And I think that is where a huge influx of CEOs are coming from, the court, the ice, or the field. Yes, absolutely. So you would prefer to start there, then start world champion, and then build to the CEO ship. 
Yes, my goal would be a world champion who turns into a CEO. All right. What book are you currently reading or what podcast are you currently listening to? Straight Shooter by Stephen A. Smith. Great book. Oh, Stephen A. is definitely an interesting guy, personality, and he always has some interesting perspectives that he shares with the world. Next question is, if you could have any song played at all of your public appearances, what would that one song be? Well, like Bruce Springsteen, I grew up in the swamps of Jersey, so I would say Rosalita. All right. What would your next career move be if you were guaranteed to succeed? Well, I I think I would love to be a musician. I have no talent outside of the fact that I'm okay speaking in front of people, so a musician it would be. Okay. You have 24 hours in a private plane that will take you anywhere. Where are you going? 24 hours of Lamar. Bonus question is M&M's, plain or peanut? Peanut all the way. There you go. That's my choice too. So John, you mentioned mentor as one of your three words and something else that you've done. Do you like me or a podcast host? And your podcast is the Sports Mentoring Podcast. I know you're in between doing shows now, but it's something that's going to be back online here in the future. So I'm looking forward to that. But tell us about why did you want to create this podcast? Well, I've been the beneficiary of mentorship throughout my career and my life. And What I've learned over the years is that there's no better example of the power of mentoring than in sports. So I decided to shine a light on that aspect, and I started a podcast. The podcast is not about me. I try not to talk too much. It's really about the guest, and it's a guest-based podcast. I've had a chance to work with a lot of amazing people, Manuel Acho, Neko Ogumake, Dick Vitale, I've had on Ian Eagle, Kenny Albert, spent a lot of great time with James Brown and others. The first guest I had on the podcast was Joe Torrey, and that really kicked things off. And I asked him the first question, you know, what does the word mentor mean to you? And I'll never forget, it was sort of kicked off the whole thing so perfectly. He said, John, the, the word mentor means you're trying to help somebody. And that for me captured the essence of what you need to do in life and in the workplace with people you are tied to, whether through employment or friendships or relationships. And the journey has been amazing. I had I had Doc Emmerich on. What a great experience, a hero of mine. And so really, it was a chance to shine a light and for these individuals to acknowledge the people that helped them along the way as well. Great. I love it. And we're going to have a link in the show notes for your podcast so people can check out all the great episodes that you have out already. And I know I'm looking forward to when you relaunch and have some new guests on as well. So John, as we look to close our show, let people know where you at on social media. How can they follow you on your journey? Hey, you can follow me at John Schwartz one on Twitter and LinkedIn. Perfect. And we will have those also in the show notes so people can keep up with you as well. Lastly, John, I do want to mention that you're also a professor at NYU. And so you're teaching a great class this summer about Special Olympics. Just tell us briefly a little bit about that. Yeah, the class is actually not about Special Olympics. It's for Special Olympics. It's a class where it's called Real World. It's a class where we get an assignment from a client. Last time I taught it was Anheuser-Busch. A real business challenge. The client comes in and shares that. We spend the whole semester splitting up into teams and each of those teams solving the business challenge with an idea or solution. At the end, we come back with a pitch, Shark Tank style, back to the client. 
all the ideas remain the intellectual property of the client. So we serve as a sort of a mini agency for the client. And the Special Olympics has given us a really, really challenging and exciting assignment. I hope you're going to see in the market next summer. Well, I look forward to seeing what the teams come up with or the class comes up with, and hopefully we see something out next summer, like you mentioned. And I think it's just a great class that you teach. I mean, you know that I shared with you that I mentor in the high school level, an incubator style class, which is just incredible to see. I mean, there's so many organizations now doing these shark tank incubation type of activities, and it's really cool to drive people's thinking at younger ages as well. They even have, I forget what it's called. So incubator.edu is the high school level that I mentor, but they also have one at the elementary school, which is a super cool because back in the day, I mean, none of that happened. So it's just a great way for kids to really start thinking about problem solving, creating ideas, testing the market and giving them real world skills to help them move the ball. Even if they don't become an entrepreneur, there's so many things they can take away from it just to be successful wherever they go. Jen, you're a busy person. Uh, One of the busiest (laughs) people I know. Uh, You're flying everywhere seemingly this month. And the fact that you take time to do that is really, really important and special. Most people don't. Most people will move about their life, go to work, have family life, have fun, and they don't make any time for that. So I applaud you for doing that. You are serving a critical community need. I'm sure there are going to be some future world leaders that come out of of the work that you're doing. So kudos. Oh, well, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. So John, thank you so much for being on the show today. It has been awesome chatting with you. Same here, Jen. Thanks for having me and good luck with Move the Ball moving forward. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening to today's episode. Once again, if you haven't already done so, hit that follow button wherever you are listening to the show so that you never miss a future episode. And also share the show with some friends too. It's one way that you can help me to move the ball. All right. Thanks again for listening and we will catch you next time. Until then, make sure that you suit up, you show up and you move the ball. Thanks for listening to Move the Ball, everybody. If you were inspired by this episode, can you do me a favor and let me know? Go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. And also, share the show with a few friends too. Next, I want you to go to getinsidethehuddle.com and join our email list. This will give you priority access to tips and strategies that will help you get more done today. Not tomorrow, not next week, today. You got that? Okay, until next time.